Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is drummer and music attorney Kurt Dahl. But first of all, what so many of us hold up inside, not being able to gig or do much in the outside world, I think it's a really good time to discuss the new release schedule that musicians and artists and bands should really consider. First of all, I think it's a good idea, and we're seeing it already in the streaming services and already in new releases for major artists, that they're not really concentrating on the album, like in prior eras. It's not nearly as important. So what ends up happening is the releases are more and less time in between. Normally, anywhere between every four and six weeks. But now, with the isolation that we're going through, it might be even better to speed that up even more. Every week might even do your career a whole lot better than it would otherwise. The reason why you want to do this is every time you release a single, it's a new and special event that you can promote. There's more time that your fans can spend with that one song. And finally, you still can release an album, but just at the end of your cycle. So if you have eight songs at the end of that cycle, you release all eight or 10 or however many as an album. So now what ends up happening is you have much more in terms to promote because you're promoting every single, plus you're promoting the album at the end. And on top of it, you're able to have more flexibility as to what's on the album. You don't have to think about that upfront Since you were releasing singles, you could think of that kind of at the end of the whole cycle. So this turns out to be a whole lot better. Now, if you're uncomfortable at releasing one song, and I know there's some argument that says, well, you know, my fans are going to get sick of just listening to one song over and over. How many times can they listen to it? Yes, it's true. So release two at a time. And I think you'll be able to take advantage of not only the new release schedule, but you'll be able to take advantage of the fact that people are starved for entertainment right now, and new music from you is just what they're looking for. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and get free ebooks and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. Now, if you're a bass player, you've probably noticed this. If you're a guitar player or just a musician who plays with bass players, you might not have noticed this unless you're in the studio, but basses don't all play in tune, especially as you go higher up the neck. That's a real problem, and <laughs> it drives producers and engineers crazy, especially when the bass player is trying to play high up the neck on the two lower strings on the E and A. Well, this may not be a problem anymore because of some new bass string technology. It turns out that Dr. Jonathan Kemp at the University of St. Andrews School of Physics and Astronomy has looked into this, and then he looked at how piano strings are being made and came up with this new idea in order to make bass strings. This is called lumped construction. And you might think, what is that? Well, 
really all it is is down at the bottom of the string near the bridge there's a lump and what it is there's three layers of string in that lump and what it does is it evens out the harmonics the upper harmonics because it turns out that's what the problem is when you play up the neck you're hearing less of the fundamental and much more of the overtones and that's what's giving you the impression that it's out of tune this lumped construction that Dr. Kemp is using will actually overcome that and give you a pure tone, not only on the higher fretted notes, but on the lower ones as well. This is no longer just a paper. This is actually turned into a product. You can find out more at Kemp Strings, K-E-M-P Strings, all one word, KempStrings.com. So if that's been bugging you for a long time, you might want to check out this new technology. My guest today is Kurt Dahl, who's not only a successful entertainment attorney, but a busy drummer as well. His band, One Bad Son, has toured North America with Def Leppard, Judas Priest, and even opened for the Rolling Stones. While working as a musician, Kurt decided that he could help his band more by getting educated in the music business, and that became a law degree and a second career. Kurt has also written articles for a host of magazines, like Canadian Musician, Canadian Lawyer, Drum Magazine, SOCAN Magazine, and dozens of other industry publications, as well as made TV appearances, an interview on NPR, and lectured at universities and conferences across the country. During the interview, we spoke about how Kurt can still do his attorney job while being on tour, what it's like to represent yourself in a negotiation, his article on the legalities of tribute bands, the worst mistakes an artist can make, and much more. I spoke with Kurt via Skype from his office in Saskatoon, Canada. I have to say, you have the best branding I've ever seen from somebody who's a musician and anything else. Because normally what you do is you take your career and you hide the musician, or you're a musician and you hide your career, and you found a way to blend them both together where it's a brand, and it's a wonderful thing. So how did that happen? Well, thanks a lot. First off, thank you, Bobby. That means a lot, man. Yeah, it sort of started innocently, uh, or unintentionally, I should say, like, I've always been a huge music lover and musician all my life, just like yourself. And, you know, um, I guess I, I read so many rock and roll biographies when I was growing up, as I'm sure you did as well. You know, all yeah. my idols, you know, bands you worked with, The Who, Hendrix, Zappa. I've read all these rock biographies. And one thing that was the common thread with all of them is that s musicians got screwed over by someone in a suit. So, you know... I thought that maybe if I could become a lawyer, I would at least stop my band from getting exploited by the people in suits or at least help my friend's band. So it was sort of like, a, you know, I wanted to help out those nearest to me. And then, you know, so I went to law school and kind of liked it. Like, at least I liked the study of entertainment law. And then next, you know, I kept going to school until my band made it. And it took me, took a decade of, of being in school before the band started to take off. So by the end of it, I'd become a lawyer and, you know, I had long hair and sideburns. And so I guess I was destined to become an entertainment lawyer. Yeah. Although a lot of the entertainment attorneys that I know down here, they don't look like that. They're more typical. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. And honestly, I guess I just realized a long time ago, and this goes back to the whole branding part. I mean, that's, it's just me, you know, I'm a musician first and foremost, and 
entertainment law is a, a real passion of mine and I've been lucky enough to like become really recognized for being an entertainment lawyer. So I figured, you know, if it doesn't matter what I look like, I mean, I look like a rock and roller, but as long as the work is, is, is amazing, then it shouldn't matter, you know? So I, I just, I like breaking, breaking stereotypes and, and breaking the mold a bit, you know? So I wasn't going to pretend to be someone I'm not. How old were you when you went to law school? Uh, so I graduated 2005. So I guess I was, so I was about 21 when I went to law school. Okay. So fairly young in your career, you decided you're going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, but it's interesting cause it's, um, it's, it's a very small, there's not many, there's not very many entertainment lawyers, especially in Canada, but even in America. So it was sort of, I knew I wanted to do this. I, I knew I could not just be a regular lawyer and, and be happy. I mean, entertainment law and the music biz is, is my passion and I'm sure you and I could talk for hours on end about all the different rock and roll that we both love. Okay. So, you know, I just knew that this was what I wanted to do. So I've never felt like a regular lawyer. You know, it's music biz is my passion. Therefore, you know, I became a lawyer in that world. And yeah, I, I couldn't do any other type of law without being happy. How do you reconcile your gig as an attorney with the fact that you're still playing? And I saw that you toured with Sebastian Bach a few years back, and it was a fairly long tour. I'm just wondering how how you made that all work. Yeah, and thank you. That's a great question. Like, at the heart of it is, you know, I, I work, like, my laptop is my office, and I don't work in an office, like, in a regular office. Um, I, I promised myself when I was, like, 21 that I wouldn't be stuck in an office for the rest of my life, and, and I've been able to keep that promise so like right now you're calling me, I'm at home with my dog beside me and you know, this is my, this is where I work usually from home. If we go on tour, I got the laptop, I'm in the back of the bus. It doesn't mean that there aren't difficult days. I mean, some days, especially as an opening act, like you're driving 12 hours, going on four hours sleep to get there for sound check. And so days some days are tough, but I mean, most of it's like I'm in the back of the bus working on contracts while the other guys are, you know, having a rest or playing video games and I'm negotiating deals, you know, and I couldn't do this obviously 15 years ago or even 10 years ago. So the timing's really great. I mean, I'm able to use my phone and my laptop to do it, but I think it's very much sort of a modern, uh, you know, modern world. Yeah. I'm sort of the same way in that I travel a lot. I'm somewhere around the world and it doesn't matter for all intents and purposes. I'm still here in Burbank, you know, as far as anybody knows, because of my laptop, my laptop keeps me pretty much, uh, as business as usual and works like that for you too. Yeah. It's, it's a real, it's like, it, I feel, I mean, I feel very lucky that I can do it and I'm not stuck in the office and, you know, like sometimes we'll go to Mexico for a few weeks, you know, and you know, I'm working every day, but I got my feet in the sand and I got a margarita in hand and, no one's the wiser, you know? So, um, it really is like, I feel very lucky that I can just be mobile like that. I was on a cruise and right in the middle of the Atlantic ocean, 2000 miles in any direction from any land. And I had a four way conference call via Skype and it actually worked. If you can believe that works better that it worked better there than it does on land sometimes. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing what we can do these days. And I feel like it gives us more freedom. I, I think you also have to, at least I do, I find myself, so I got to check in every now and then and, and not be too plugged in because 
I got people emailing and calling me every day, clients and stuff, and you can overdo it. Like sometimes I need to just remind myself to, to unplug a bit, but, uh, I take that over, you know, having to be, like I said, stuck in an office working for someone else. Okay. So let's talk about you as a drummer for a little bit. Tell me how you got started and the progression of your career. Yeah. So I, I was a late bloomer, like, you know, a lot of fellow musicians, you know, they start when they're like five or six and you hear about these, they're just amazing by the time they're 10. That was not me. I mean, I was, I started in grade 12. So I was whatever, 18 or 17. Um, and I started and I was horrible, you know, like for the first couple of years I, I sucked, but I, but I didn't think so. You know, I, I thought that I was, you know, I didn't care how good it was. I, I loved what I was doing. I loved playing drums and, you know, my favorites are, you know, Keith Moon, John Bonham, Stuart Copeland. I mean, um, so I would just put on headphones, plug it into my record player, like vinyl player, and play along to all those all those great records, you know. And um, that was the great thing about drumming is that I didn't I didn't take lessons. I never took any formal lessons until much later. But I could put on the headphones and play along to my idols, and that was way cooler than playing along with some teacher, you know. Yeah. I could play, and I, obviously in the early days, I couldn't play along with Keith Moon and John Bonham, but, you know, one of the early records, like Ziggy Stardust, to me, that was a great drum record to learn from because there's some cool drums, some cool fills, but it's, you know, pretty meat and potatoes. So, I mean, I, I wore out Ziggy Stardust on vinyl just playing along to all those drums, and by the time... You know, after a couple of years of doing that, I was all of a sudden I didn't suck anymore. Ken Scott, who produced and recorded the Ziggy Stardust album, told me a story where when they were setting up to record before they actually recorded Ziggy Stardust, Woody, the the drummer, made some sort of comment about his drum sounding like cardboard boxes. So what they did is they went out and they actually got cardboard boxes and put them in place of the drums. So when he came in the next day, he would see that thinking that he would really enjoy the fact that they were taking the piss out of him. And in fact, it went just the opposite where he was not happy at all. Just goes to show you, huh? Yeah, he's, he's great. Yeah, that was, that's a great story. Okay. So how often are you gigging right now? Yeah. And so that, and that's a big factor too, that kind of, you know, like we, so we've been together for 16 years as one bad son and and this relates kind of to your earlier question of how do I balance it? I mean, earlier, like there was a time we were touring like nine, 10 months of the year. And I, I don't think I could be a, as busy as I am now as a lawyer and then balance it too. Cause that's just, I would probably had a breakdown, you know? So now we're touring less. I've got two young kids and our, our band members have kids. So it, it's sort of like we tour less, but, but better, more quality, less quantity in terms of touring. So, I mean, right now we're sort of in between albums. We, you know, we, we do like some big festival plays and that sort of thing, but we're not going on like the the six month tour like we used to. So that helps. I mean, right now we're writing new music, so we're not touring a ton. Once new music is out there, then it it'll be different. But I don't think any of us plans to go back to like the ten months of the year touring because that that's a, it's a great it's a great life in your twenties, but when you're in your late thirties, it's it's a bit tougher, you know. Yeah, I remember getting on a tour bus once 
and being really tired, you know, after being out for a month or something and looking at the itinerary and going, oh, six more months, oh, and just thinking, I, I don't know if I can take this. As you say, at 20, you look at it and you go, oh boy, six more months. And then you hit 30 and beyond, you go, oh God. Yeah. Well, and I guess it depends where you're at too. I mean, I mean, six months in a row, I think is tough for anyone, but if, if you're at, if you're at the level of, well, like say Rage Against the Machine, who just, you know, obviously reuniting and they're playing whatever, two or three months. But at that level, I mean, I think you, it'd be, that's the, that's a luxury at touring to sold out stadiums around the world, you know? Yeah. Um, I've never got to that level, but so I think part of it is like, yeah, the level of comfort you're at and, you know, we, um, yeah, we, we've, we've, we've toured like crazy in a van and trailer as well as a bus, you know, and when you're doing a van and trailer, like, man, it's, uh, it, it takes, it takes it out of you for sure. I mean, yeah. I love it, but it, it wears you out for sure. So I take it that you negotiate your band's deals, right? I do. Yeah. And I don't charge them. <laughs> well, is that more difficult for you? Because, you know, it's always harder to promote yourself. It's always harder to do everything for yourself. When you're a uh, disconnected third party, it's easier to, to go into negotiations. Do, do you face that at all? Yeah, hundred percent. You're so right. It's the the toughest deals to negotiate are, are the ones I'm doing for my own band, for sure. It's just you're too personally involved. I, I I've even said in the past that we should get we should hire a lawyer to do this, just because it would take <clears throat> the personal side of it out. But you know, the guys trust me and don't want to <clears throat> pay someone else to do it. So I, I take it as an honor that I I'm able to do it, but. Yeah, it's it's tough for sure. What was the first one that you did for your band? You've been together for a long, long time, but you've only been an attorney for part of that. So, what, yeah. what was the first one that you did? Well, in the early days, you know, that when when you're starting out, that's when the, the sort of sharks in the music biz uh, are just lurking, and they want they, they love to take advantage of bands that are on the way up and in the early stages of on the way up. So, in the early days, yeah, we got s some offers just over the internet. I mean, that getting record deal offers over the internet seems kind of crazy, but, but it happens all the time. And, you know, some of these deals were just ludicrous, you know, like, you know, give us all of your master rights and your publishing rights and we'll give you, you know, a hundred dollars or something yeah. and split that four ways, you know? Yeah. Right. Uh, so those are the early ones. And then the big one was, you know, we moved to Vancouver and signed a big record deal and well, not big, but big ish, um, one of the bigger labels that's sort of an indie in Canada. And so that was a big negotiation. And, um, we initially actually hired uh, a lawyer in New York cause our, our manager at the time was in New York and thought we should do this. And then the lawyer just in the nature, the way he communicated, like sometimes lawyers can, as, as we all know, I mean, the stereotypical lawyer can be a bit of an asshole and, yeah. um, that's what this lawyer was. And it really, it almost ruined the entire negotiation because his um, communication um, standard or method was just rubbed the label the wrong way and we almost lost the deal. So then I had to kind of come in and I'd just become a lawyer and I had to salvage the deal. And so that was the first, the first real deal that I negotiated for the band. And it was also the first time I realized that, you know, part of being a, a good attorney is understanding people and, and having good people skills, you know, and, um, not being an asshole. I mean, there, there is the, there is the certain lawyer that's sort of the asshole lawyer and that can work, 
but that's rare and it's not it's also not my style i mean you have to ultimately have two sides meet in the middle somewhere and both be happy where where they meet um and that's where i learned that you know i always thought that too but for some reason most lawyers have an edge to them you know, I often wondered, is this something that was taught when they went to law school, that they have to have that, or is this part of the personality of being a lawyer? I'm, I'm not sure. What's your take on it? Well, that's a good question, Bobby. You know, I think it could be a, a many things, but I know a lot of it is arrogance, you know, and I've always tried to be really effing humble because, you know, you're only as good as your, your latest deal. Same with musicians, you're only as good as your latest song. And life is short. Stay humble. Everyone's working their ass off. And if you're going to, on the lawyer side, if you're going to charge a decent chunk of change, which a lot of lawyers do, you better be great at it and and do great work. And like I said, stay humble. So I think a lot of lawyers are children of lawyers and that goes back multiple generations sometimes. That's not me. I mean, I come from, my parents are both like my dad worked in auto body and my mom's a hairdresser. So you know, definitely the only lawyer in my extended family. And I just feel you got to work your ass off for every, every success you get and treat people with respect because that's how I want to be treated. So where are you from originally? Uh, Saskatoon, where I live now. Oh, okay. Yeah, we moved out to Vancouver for a handful of years to sort of get to the next level as a band and as, as an entertainment lawyer. And once we had done that, we all realized that like Saskatoon is, is home, you know, and so... I mean, a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people in Cali don't know where Saskatoon is, but my wife's in-law, uh, sorry, my wife's dad is is from California. So we go down often and um, yeah, I, I love Cali. It's, it's one of my favorite places to go visit, but a lot of people don't know where I'm from. The only way I know about it is from uh, a Guess Who song somewhere. <laughs> oh, great tune, yeah. I was a big Guess Who fan, so, you know, I, I just soaked up everything about the band, and, and they always talked about the provinces of Canada. That's a great tune, and I love, I've got the, was it Live at the Paramount uh, live record? Yeah. And um, I don't know if that song's on there, I don't think that song's on there, but yeah, what a great live record, what a great band, and yeah, they're sort of, they're from just east of here in, in Winnipeg. Yeah, they're, 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 good, they're good prairie boys. Yeah. Okay, tell me about your thesis on the future of the music industry. Yeah, so this was around, I wrote this in 2009. I, I did a master's in law, which not a lot of people do unless you're going to become like a professor or something. But I did it because there wasn't, you know, they don't teach a lot about entertainment law. I mean, anywhere in Canada, really. I'm sure it's different in LA, but, you know, in Canada, it's a bit different. So I wanted to become an expert in entertainment law before I started you know, practicing in that area. So 2009, I see all these changes happening as we all did in terms of going from physical to digital in the music biz and, and how that was disrupting everything, right? This is all you heard of in 2009, 2010 was, you know, the whole industry is falling apart because the model that had been in place for so long was based on physical sales of, you know, vinyl cassettes or CDs and that was all crumbling. So I thought, this is interesting to, to focus on from a legal standpoint because the value of the copyrights on, on those physical formats is changing. So I looked at, you know, how is this going to affect the music industry? How will musicians make a living when we leave that sort of physical realm, which, of course, we have now? I mean, 
people like I'm sure you and I still buy vinyl and maybe the occasional CD, but for, you know, by and large, the industry is not buying physical like it used to. And so we've pretty much entered that, that non-physical world where you see streaming and YouTube plays, you know, far outnumbering physical sales. So I guess back in 2009, I looked, examined how would that shift really affect the music industry and musicians. And, and that's, yeah, that was my thesis. So that's what I dug into and wrote, you know, a, a massive uh, paper on. Okay. So now that that's all come to pass, what are your thoughts now? Well, it's interesting. I mean, part of me wishes we could put the genie back in the bottle because I, I miss those days of, you know, rushing to the record store to pick up your favorite record when it, on the day it got released, you know, and yeah. open a vinyl and just that smell when you open a vinyl, it's that certain sensory experience, which you do not get on Spotify. But then part of me is also like the genie's out of the bottle. You can't go back. Let's just focus on what's, what's realistic here, you know? So for me, I mean, as a music, as a music fan, I still think that there's nothing better than putting on a piece of record, a piece of vinyl and listening to an album front to back. To me, like, I'm old fashioned. I still listen to records, that, like albums that way. I believe that the greatest rock uh, statements are in album format. But of course, if you look at the numbers these days, I'm not the norm. I mean, your average 13 year old is not doing that. So I think something is lost for sure. And I listen to Spotify too when I'm sitting on the house working. You know, I'm, I'm not down in the basement putting on, putting on vinyl. But again, the experience is, is lessened. And and yeah, I guess at the end of the day, I think musicians are, are definitely horribly underpaid when it comes to Spotify and YouTube spins. Unless you're like the Beyonce's of the world where you're getting hundreds of millions of spins and streams, you're not making anything off Spotify. And to me, that's not right. You know, the, the value proposition is not accurate there. And the big tech companies are making a ton of money off of providing these services and the musicians aren't. And to me, that's not, that's not fair. Yes. But, and I'm going to play the devil's advocate for a second here, Yeah, but Spotify isn't making any money. They've turned a profit, but it was a paper profit. So you can look at it and say, well, when they got 70 plus percent of what's coming in, going out to the, the music industry, Mm, no wonder they're going into podcasting. There's big margin there. So, I mean, you can look at it and say, yes, musicians aren't making maybe what they're supposed to make or what we think they're supposed to make. But on the other hand, is it any different than it's ever been? And that's a fair point. And you're right. I think, and that that's what I've been kind of stewing on for a while is in terms of writing my next article is, does Spotify pay fairly? And it's a big topic. So I've been, that's why I've been stewing on it for a while. Cause I have to do a lot of research, obviously. And I think you're right. Part of the issue is it's not only Spotify, but it's the labels that, that so the deals that are in place, you know, the labels get paid, but then the artists get paid a, a very small fraction of that in terms of Spotify money. So, you know, I, I appreciate that the issue is, you know, deeper than I may have touched on, but I mean, I think, but at the same time, Spotify, the valuation in terms of like the, you know, the company and for the shareholders is just massive, right? So people realize the value of it, but somehow they don't realize the value of the music, what, what props it all up, which is the music, you know? Um, but yeah, fair point. I mean, I think it's, you know, in, is it different than the old days? Good question. I mean, in the old days, I feel like the artists had less control of their career. You know, these days, 
you don't make much from music itself, but you can make a killing like on touring and, and branding and all that stuff. And I think that most musicians are more in control of their career. And even just through social media, I mean, they have a voice, they can connect directly with their fans. If their label drops them, they still have, and they still have 10 million followers on socials. Well, then they can still access their fans, which in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, I think you're more at the whim of, of the big bad powers that be. So yeah, it's a, it's a definite, it's a complex discussion. And I, and I appreciate you bring up the, the counterpoint, which it's, it's a deep discussion, which, you know, it's, I think it's like a whole podcast on its own. There's no right or wrong answers really, because it, there's so much that's unclear and vague. And there's a lecture that I do when I go to schools to talk, and it's all about streaming royalties and how they're calculated and all the myths involved. As a matter of fact, I'm doing it tomorrow at a, a local college here. And when you begin to look at it, now I've tried to follow it all back to the micro sense, if I can, and you, you find that there's so much that's so complex and you go, it's amazing that anyone's figured it out to the extent that you actually get paid. You know, when you begin to talk all about the bundles and, and how everything is determined from that, it just goes on and on and on. So it, as you say, it's a complex issue. It's not something that's easy to, to determine. People always ask, like, what is, how much do people get paid per stream? And, and you can't really answer that because it's not a def definite answer. No, know? no, absolutely not. You can say, okay, it's different per streaming service, but even within the streaming service, it's different depending on you know what tier, what country even. We're talking YouTube, it's a time of year. I mean, there's so many variables there. Yeah. I found you through a blog post that you did, wonderful blog post about tribute bands and what's legal and illegal. And speaking of gray areas, there's a lot of gray areas there too, right? Yeah, definitely. So with tribute bands, it seems like there's more and more of them all the time. Yeah, that's it. That's what struck me. That's what kind of inspired me to write it. The, the one thing I don't think you covered was... Would a tribute band be responsible for royalties back to the original band? Like, so some, I talked about this a bit in the article that sometimes, you know, if you really want hundred percent, if you want to make sure you're following the law and, and being law abiding as a tribute act, the best way, the, the surefire way is to get approval from the original act. And then you can, oftentimes you work out some sort of licensing situation where you might pay them X amount of dollars per show or maybe a percentage of your income, right? So I've heard of situations with uh, with ABBA is one example I heard of, and I can't confirm it because these these deals are all obviously confidential. But you know, you give you give them the actual act like ten percent of what you what you earn, which is it's kind of crazy to think about. But I mean, it does make sense. And this this whole article, you know, I started writing it because out of a place of love for. Like I enjoy tribute acts and I think the article was misinterpreted by some as me beating up on tribute acts. And maybe that's because I, I made some, put some jokes in each of the photo captions, but it was hard not to, if you, if you can't, if you can't make fun of yourself as yeah, a yeah, right. musician or tribute act, then, then, then you got other issues. But anyways, I didn't realize when I started to write the article that in fact, if, when you look at the law, it is actually many tributes are, are violating the law. And so, yeah, the big thing, it comes down to, are you taking away business from the original act, which is pretty easy to prove, actually. 
And then secondly, are you confusing consumers? I mean, sometimes you hear acts that they, or you see acts with, that have the exact same image and the same uh, trademarks being used. And you may actually confuse consumers, which as I joke, I mean, if, if a consumer thinks they get to see Bon Jovi for $5, <laughs> there's, there's, something, there's something wrong with the consumer. But that's one of the tests is, is would, would, a consume, would, would a consumer be confused? And then I guess, yeah, thirdly, yeah, is there damage being done to, to the original act? And, and yeah, so it's, it's interesting because most tributes that I've seen over the years probably would fail that test. They, they would probably be in violation. Now, the question is, does the original act want to act on it? Most of them seem pretty benign about the whole thing, where I think they take it almost as, you know, badge of honor in a way. Yeah, I think you're right. And they don't, they don't care. I mean, what's... You know, Mick and Keith aren't going to take the time to try to sue some Stones tribute. But as I note in the article, I mean, Bon Jovi, who, again, you, you wouldn't think they need the money or, or care, but they did, or their lawyers did at least. And then ABBA, you know, there, there's so many ABBA tributes and, and they their lawyers issued, you know, cease and desist to, I think it was, you know, six or seven or more uh, ABBA tributes in Europe alone. So I guess at some point, maybe with the ABBA discussion, I think it's different maybe with the Stones or Zeppelin, but somehow with ABBA, it's almost, or a band like ABBA, it's almost like if there's so many tributes, maybe it does dilute the brand somehow. And people say, so if ABBA were to reunite, people would say, wow, we've seen the tribute so many times, we don't have to pay the $300 for a ticket or something, you know? Yeah, right, right. You um, have a unique perspective because you're a working musician, still a working musician. Yeah. So what would be the worst mistake that you see bands, artists make when it comes to career and maybe, you know, record deal type of negotiations? Yeah, that's a great question, Bobby. I think because every deal is so different. Um, I guess overall, if I think about it, and I've never really answer this question but i guess the most common mistake is looking short term rather than long term and and i get it because i've been a starving musician where you know getting ten thousand dollars could it seems like that's that's everything that could all of a sudden feed you for the next several months and so sometimes artists will take on a a really crappy deal and give away the rights especially on the publishing side you know give give away rights on the compositions with the publishing that lasts for like the life of the copyright. So the life of the author plus 50 plus years. So we're talking a hundred years of, of rights to a song or several songs for, for peanuts, but it's because the artist is, is broke, you know, and then, and then the worst thing that can happen is their success. And then all of a sudden, cause if nothing succeeds, then it doesn't matter. But when, it, when there is success, they call me and say, I gave away my catalog of publishing for, for $10,000 and now it's worth a million and I've only got 10,000 to show for it. And that's, it is, it's saddening as a, as someone who's empathetic to my fellow musicians. So I guess the best thing to do is and to get legal advice ahead of these, ahead of any of these deals and, and go with someone you trust. You know, there's, there's a lot of good lawyers out there. There's a lot of bad ones, but someone you can trust is important. And then make sure you, yeah, because a good lawyer will help you look long-term. And they might say, 
well, the 10 grand, let's maybe hold off on this a bit. Let's release the songs on our own. And then, you know, and then that 10 grand could be turned into a million and off we go, you know. Then again, the downside of that is where you might have to pay a retainer of 10 grand just to talk to a good attorney. Yeah. And find someone who's affordable, which, yeah, I always, I find I, I walk that, that line every day is, you know, being fair to, to those that, you know, that I'm trying to give advice to. And I, I think, I think a, that's a misconception to some extent. I mean, lawyers can be expensive, of course. And, and a lot of times it, it's, it really is justified based on the, the amount of risk and, and, and what's at stake. But I, I don't think if you get a deal, like I always say to people, you know, both online and off, like send me, send me what the deal is. And at least I can look at it and tell you, you know, a give you a quote, but also b tell you what to look out for. And I've never said here, yeah, give me 10 grand and I'll, and I'll, I'll talk to you. It's more like, let me see what, what I, what I can do to help and give you a rough idea of what you're looking at. And I'll say this, and this is, this is not just self-promotion or, or promoting the practice and or the lawyers in general, but a lot of like so many times I've seen artists not get advice and then it ends up costing them way more. And, and that's, that's the same with anything, right? I mean, it's like a, a penny now or a pound later. Right. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that find someone you trust and find someone that's that you can afford. And there's a lot out there that'll like myself, that'll probably do it for, for less because they want to, you know, establish long-term relationship with the, with the musicians, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. last question, Kurt, What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? Uh, That's a good question. I guess it kind of relates to what we're just were talking about. Like, I guess what separates me from a lot of lawyers, I think is if I can speak with a bit of self-awareness is, you know, I get a lot of people come to me and say, I've been overbilled and underserviced by other lawyers, you know, and, and again, that's the, that's the stereotype with lawyers is they'll, you know, charge you $500 for an email or something. And it's like, what? Yeah. So I've, again, I've come from humble beginnings and I don't, I wasn't handed a, you know, a silver platter or anything like that. So I've had to work my ass off for every success that I've got. So for me, it's always work your ass off work harder than everyone else. And that, that's the same with whether you're a musician or a lawyer or whatever you're doing, work harder than everyone else. And and stay humble and, and do good work. I mean, uh, which is very, maybe that's cliche, but it really is. I think it's the same with my musician side or, or the lawyer side. It's like, I've just always felt that I, I don't deserve anything. I, you know, I'm not entitled to anything. I have to go out there and go get it. Right. And I, and I think, you know, as a drummer, I, I learned that at a young age, like I wasn't just, some people just pick up the sticks and they're just naturally brilliant. And, that wasn't me. I had to work my ass off playing along to, to Bowie until I graduated to, to Bonham and then Keith Moon, you know, and, um, and it took me way longer to get to the, to rush, of course. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's like, yeah, work hard and stay humble. And I think your reputation really speaks for itself. And, and that's, it's the same with you. I mean, I heard a lot of great things and your reputation speaks for itself, Bobby. And that's the people, when you mentioned me a couple weeks ago, I got my phone lit up like, Oh, you got mentioned by Bobby. So there you go. I mean, reputation, word of mouth goes a long way. And that's, uh, that's never more true than in the music biz. You can find out more about Kurt and read some of his very helpful articles at lawyerdrummer.com. That's lawyerdrummer, all one word, lawyerdrummer.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. 
Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.